0: This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. So, uh, we are once again talking with George Wirthner. He is an ecologist, writer, and photographer, and he studied and writ- written about and photographed natural habitats all over America. So, welcome back, George. It's great to be talking with you again today, and we're continuing our conversation from last week. So, we've been talking about the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and the need to turn it into a national park under the National Park Service. So what I wanted to pick up on is uh, what's wrong with uh, the National Forest Service or BLM or Fish and Wildlife Service as managing uh, some of these areas?
1: Well, the, the main difference is that all those other agencies have a uh, legislative and uh, sort of a philosophical mandate to allow resource extraction and use that uh, often has detrimental effects on ecosystems and wildlife. And it's sort of almost embedded in their history from the beginning and has, you know, like the Bureau of Land Management that used to be the grazing service. And so, it still has this sort of bias to promote livestock grazing on public lands. And the Forest Service in its early history was, again, promoting uh, logging Although more limited than on private lands, but still promoted logging as one of its missions, particularly accelerating in the 1950s and 60s. And so these agencies, both to rise up in the bureaucracy, as well as their sort of the general mandate of how they operate, have a, a philosophy that tends to encourage, like I said, resource extraction, mining, logging, oil and gas development, and other things that are sort of incompatible with Preserving ecosystem processes. But uh,
0: there are areas like Bears Ears that have been designated as national monuments, and they've been put under the uh, management of, uh, in that case, BLM. Isn't that right?
1: Yes, it has been. And and the thing that's sort of different about any national monument designation is, uh, which well, setbacks so people understand, only a president can declare um a national monument. That's one of the things that's a presidential prerogative, whereas uh, national parks and wilderness have to be designated by Congress, congressional action. Anyway, the bear, bears ears as with most national monuments has specific language and you can write any language you want in a national monument proclamation. Um, so you could write language into uh, a, a national monument. For example, the, uh, Cascade Siskiyou National Monument in Oregon and California border, had specific language that said grazing could only continue if it could be shown not to have detrimental effects on the primary purposes which the monument had been designated. And the BLM did a study that concluded that grazing was having an impact and so grazing has been eliminated. So that's an example of the specific language you can put into national monument uh, legislation but you can also have legislation that says grazing will continue in the national monument and can't be uh, terminated for any reason. Uh you can have language that says the same thing about oil and gas logging etc. Usually that's not the case but the point is is uh national monument is very specific uh language whereas uh wilderness is a national legislation that has time tested language That's uh, been in the courts many times. So we know what we get with wilderness. And for the most part, I would say we know what we get from the National Park Service too for the same reasons that their basic mission is protection unimpaired for future generations. And they try to the best of their ability to carry out that mission.
0: In those cases where the Forest Service or BLM or Fish and Wildlife have been given management over a area designated as the National Monument, they don't necessarily have grazing or mining or logging going on within those areas.
1: Not, not necessarily, so long as the language prohibits it. Yeah, okay. So uh, I believe like Bears Ears that you brought up, if I remember correctly, prohibits oil and gas leasing and mining within the monument ba- uh, boundaries. So that would be an example, but it specifically says that in the proclamation, and that would not normally be the case on BLM lands. Yeah. Okay. Have any areas that have been designated in national parks been given management by any of those other agencies? Uh, If it's a national park unit, yes, and it's under the National Park Service. Now, we have seen, as you point out with the Bears Ears national monuments under other agencies. Uh-huh. Okay. So, like, Mount St. is under the Forest Service. It's a national monument, but it's Forest Service. So, this is a huge,
0: huge area you're, uh, that we're talking about, uh, and congressional funds are already limited for national parks, and uh, apparently there's been a deferred maintenance problem going on in the national parks for a long, long time. So, uh, what's the additional congressional funding that would be needed? for these linkages and migration corridors and hotspots and all of this area that would for which uh, further visitor centers and access points would be needed?
1: Well there I have two responses to that. The first, this would be you know, a globally significant ecosystem protection activity. And if the United <laughs> States can't come up with the funding to put the greater Yellowstone ecosystem first, then, you know, we have a, just a real problem with our our values, in my view. But the second thing is that on the national forests and the BLM lands and other federal lands surrounding the current parks, there's many l- money-losing extractive resource interests that exist. So, for example, the Forest Service always loses money on its timber sales. It always loses money on its livestock grazing. It often loses money on Trying to mitigate the ecological impacts of, of those resource extractions on the, on the, uh, public land. So if you weren't spending money, for example, uh, trying to keep grizzly bears and cattle apart on the upper Green River, if you weren't spending money on, uh, you subsidized timber sales near West Yellowstone, if you weren't, uh, you know, facilitating more oil and gas development in the Green River Valley near Pinedale, uh, which uh, has many impacts on wildlife that then taxpayers have to mitigate those impacts, or or the methane that comes out of that oil and gas that's causing acidification of the lakes in the Wind River Range. All those are impacts that are ecological costs that would be reduced or eliminated by putting it under Park Service management, which would free up money in theory for use of other things like uh, you know managing the larger park ecosystem. And because when you're not managing for anything but trying to maintain natural processes uh, you know and then for the most part that takes less money it just means mostly leaving it alone well george while we're thinking big why are you focusing
0: on the greater yellowstone ecosystem why not seek protection for that whole corridor that we connect colorado or maybe even the mexican border on the south with the continental divided ecosystem uh at our northern
1: border well, you know, I certainly wouldn't oppose that myself. But there is a, um, how shall we say, packaging advantage to talking about the greater Yellowstone ecosystem because it is, you know, it's been recognized as a biosphere reserve. It's been recognized internationally as a very special place. And it's known throughout the country as a special place. So I think it's an easier sell, uh, not that I'd be opposed to those things. And maybe they would come later but once you have gotten this kind of thing initiated. What I've found with any kind of conservation proposal is a lot of times there's initial resistance to it, and then once it's been implemented, it becomes not only, no longer resisted, but, you know, fully supported. A good example is when Grand Teton National Park was first proposed back in the, well, earlier than around the 1900s even, but uh, particularly in the 1920s, by Horace Albright, who was uh, the head of the National Park Service. There was no support in the Jackson area and opposition from Wyoming's congressional delegation. And then finally by 1950, I believe it was, you know, Grand Teton National Park was created. But when it was being opposed, you know, opponents said, if we make this a national park, it's gonna turn Jackson into a ghost town. And of course, Jackson's not a, a ghost town any, at all. I always like to joke there's like 18,000 ghosts living there. But the uh, the point being is that uh, uh, today, you know, Wyoming and its promotional brochures and in generally in acceptance of people living in say Jackson is that for the most part, they're glad that the Tetons are now a national park. And that kind of change happens over decades often, but it definitely does happen. So I'm not sort of dissuade or, you know, put off by the idea that, oh, well, there may not be uh, acceptance for this idea right now. What I find is almost all these uh, kinds of things take a while to sort of change public attitudes about. And once the attitudes change, then they go forward.
0: So the whole basis of your your concept is uh, to support wildlife. Conversely, let me just ask you, is there a threat of species extinction within the greater yellowstone ecosystem presently
1: not that i am aware of you know there are uh species that have declined greatly like um uh yellowstone cutthroat trout west slope cutthroat trout that are found there grayling that are found there they are all under watch sage grouse is another one so they're all suffering from declines in their population uh whether they'll go extinct you know we don't know but uh it certainly um, can't hurt to um, allow the Park Service to take over the management because, again, this emphasis on protection and enhancement of wildlife, as well as ecological and evolutionary processes, usually uh, benefits the uh, the ecosystem, wildlife and plants, for that matter, too. You know, white bark pine has been severely impacted by a thing called white white pine blister rust, and um, and also, in some cases, by, uh, bark beetles. And, uh, in a lot of places around the ecosystem, the white bark pine population has declined. And white bark pine are found at high elevations and are important for grizzly bears who feed on the cones and as well as some other species like Clark's nutcracker. And the uh, decline uh, has implications not only in the fact that the bears have less food because they would forage for these cones in the alpine in the fall, it kept them away from lowlands where they're much more likely to have some sort of interaction with humans that is negative.
0: Uh, You talk about a variety of benefits uh, for the national park idea for this area. One of them is biocentric intrinsic. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, biocentric means you are looking at things from uh, putting biological Preservation foremost in any of your considerations. As opposed to human-centric, which, uh, is what we have <laughs> in most places these mm-hmm. days, where we, uh, put human interests as the primary way that we view things. And so biocentric is trying to put, put a broader brush and consider how what humans do affects other living creatures that are out there trying to live in the same landscape. And intrinsic value is a philosophical concept that says that, you know, even if we can't come up with a excuse, which we often try to come up with, why we want to protect or preserve some species, it acknowledges that all species should have a right to existence, a sort of a bill of rights for species that goes beyond just human uh, considerations. And so that's the idea behind intrinsic value. And I think the two of them together, biocentric and intrinsic, if you made them a primary mission statement for uh, management would in general preserve the species as well as the ecological and evolutionary processes which are important because that's what shapes species keeping those intact are also critical
0: is biocentric intrinsic uh, the equivalent of
1: conservation biology well in many ways yes I mean uh, that that was the idea behind conservation biology is that uh, scientists biologists should not be afraid to, shall we say, support or even lobby on behalf of preserving uh, and conserving uh wildlife uh and ecosystems. Uh what about carbon storage? Well, of course, yeah, that's a good one. Thanks for bringing that up. There's a lot of evidence that shows that the that of course we're we're seeing more and more CO2 in the atmosphere from human uh burning up fossil fuels primarily and and recognition that it's causing climate chaos and as a result we have a real emergency and one of the cheapest and easiest ways to capture carbon and hold on to it is to allow trees in particular to suck the carbon out of the atmosphere and store it as as wood and its roots, etc. And since if you were to implement this concept, you would ban logging on all the National forests. I mean National Park Service administrated lands that are currently under National Forest, uh, that would lead to more conservation of carbon and storage of it. And I, and I have to hasten and point out that across the country, logging emits more CO2 than wildfires do. And even though you have wildfires, you you may have many, many acres burned. What is burning is mostly the needles and small branches, which is why you have snags left over. And what are snags made out of? Carbon. What about the roots of those snags? It's carbon. What about the charcoal that results? That's carbon. So at least for a long time into the future, decades we're talking about, even an area that's burned at high severity still stores most of its carbon in those snags and roots. So carbon storage is it more and more recognized as an important aspect of keeping intact forests. And, you know, there are proposals out there, which I fully support, which is that we should turn all our national forest lands into carbon storage units rather than trying to produce any wood off of them for, you know, lumber or whatever. And um that would be the best use. You know, the forest service has this whole thing about the best use, but in fact, they often ignore the best use because they're under pressure from industry to keep on producing wood for timber, etc.
0: So let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Uh, do you see any path toward uh, toward implementation of this idea?
1: Well, yeah, a little bit. Here's here's a couple of things to consider. You know, the Biden administration has at least said that they want to implement policies that would get to 30% protected land by the year 2030. I don't think they've made much progress in that <laughs> proposal so far. You know, who knows what will happen in twenty twenty four with the presidential election? But one can presume that if Biden is reelected, that he'd be more inclined than to be aggressive in implementation of such a policy. And one way we get part way to, you know, the vision I am um, supporting is for a presidential national monument proclamation to include. The surrounding public lands that are in Idaho and Montana, uh, and unfortunately in Wyoming, national monument proclamations are prohibited. And that was one of the key Agreement. things that were given up when to get uh, Grand Teton National Park established. Mm-hmm. So, but even if you got you know the lands in Montana and Idaho designated as national monument, uh, that would uh, you know protect a good percentage of the ecosystem, and then. What may happen, and I've seen this happen over and over again, those people who are opposed to the idea of anything being conserved or preserved, once they get past the fears they have uh, about change, they usually find it wasn't nearly as onerous as they imagine and oftentimes has uh, positive outcomes. And so what you might have happen, giving a hypothesis here. If uh, Biden were to declare the areas in Montana and, and Idaho National Monument under Park Service Management, and of course, I would want to specifically have language in there saying ending things like predator control and ending things like uh, logging and oil and gas, etc., in any of those areas. It may well be that after initial designation, you would see people saying, well, it's just not so bad, and maybe you have some positive things that we can support, and then you might get support in Wyoming. So that's one way. The other way, and this is sort of getting the long view, as I mentioned earlier, is you have to have ideas out there, what I would call shovel-ready, to use one of the terms that you hear all the time today. And the reason is is because you can never predict how Congress will react to things and what it will want to do in the future. I'll I'll just make up another scenario. Suppose by 2030, it's clear that climate chaos is just having a major impact across the country on all kinds of things, drought, hurricanes, and flooding, and wildfires, and so forth. And Congress might possibly be moved to try to do something. And they might put together some whole legislative bill that includes all kinds of stuff. And one of the things that might get thrown in there then is a provision to create a greater Yellowstone National Park. Those are the kinds of things that just happen. But if you don't have somebody out there with this idea floating around, it won't be included in such legislation. So that's the other thing about this. As I'm throwing this out there, I'm not really saying how it would necessarily be implemented, and I'm not saying when it would be implemented, but I'm saying that it is a good idea to consider and that if it's sitting out there and people are aware of it, and hopefully more people will start to discuss it, uh, then it has a chance to be uh, legislatively created or by uh, presidential executive declaration. In either case, I am absolutely certain that if it did pass and become the law in the land, that over time people would gradually, if not immediately, support the concept of a, a much expanded national park. In the greater Yellowstone and be proud of it because that would put us, that is the United States, you know, as a very big leader in global conservation efforts. And it would also make us, you know, sort of doing the walk instead of just the talk in terms of things like carbon storage and and wildlife protection and endangered species recovery and so forth. So what that does is it makes the country live up to the stated values that it articulates but often does you know, fall short of actually implementing?
0: Well, the three states involved are uh, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And uh, their governors and legislature, I think, uh, would all be opposed to the idea. Out of the Senate, Danes would obviously be opposed to it. And I suspect uh, you'd have a hell of a time getting John Tester to support it. So I wondered how we could move forward with uh, those kinds of obstacles.
1: Well, let me give you an example from my group, Restore, which lobbied for years to try to create a national park in the Maine woods. And in 19, I mean, 2016, President Obama declared a Katahdin Woods and Water National Monument in the Maine woods. It's not very big, about 87,000 acres, I believe. But at the time, it was opposed by the governor of Maine, both senators of Maine, and uh, the congressional delegation, uh, delegate from that area, all opposed this idea of a national monument there. That's in 2016. This year, both senators, the same ones that opposed it in 2016, and the congressional delegation from that area, all support doubling the size of the monument uh, and providing money to expand it that 's the kind of change that can happen you You cannot just say because somebody's opposed to something now uh, or doesn't support it that it won't happen in the future because as I said, a lot of times the circumstances change, and politicians change. they can oppose things and then eventually come around and support it so i 'm not dissuaded by that that idea because what i 've seen over and over again is that when you get you know these concepts out there I'll, I'll use the the whole idea of uh, uh, national forests. When they were first considered, they were considered forest reserves. They were also created by executive order, by president. And every Western state senator was opposed to new national forest preserves and reserves. They lobbied all the time against it. But eventually, they came around and, you know, I don't think you'd find any U.S. senator today from the West who'd say, let's get rid of our national forests. That just it doesn't happen. In fact, usually what we're doing is we're expanding our national forests and other public lands by uh, buying up uh, inholdings, etc. So the, the, what, what may seem like opposition at one time eventually sometimes comes around to uh, support and you just have to have the long term view. George, uh, in the article,
0: you mentioned that uh, this idea is an obligation to the planet. You want to talk about that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this kind of gets back to the whole idea that the human footprint has modified the majority of the Earth's surface to some degree. And there are very, you know, as a percentage-wise, a much smaller percentage of the Earth's surface where you can find, you know, natural processes, wildlife, and so forth, are either protected and preserved, or at least uh, there's, so little development that they're not threatened at this point. And so on a global basis, uh, there are very few places, particularly in the tempered zone, you know, a lot of the sort of, you might say on, uh, uh, manipulated landscapes are in places like, you know, the Canadian Arctic and, and down in Antarctica and Greenland and places like that, where there's essentially few people, uh, currently living and, uh, And modifying the landscape. And so if you go to the temperate zone around the world, there's, you know, that's where a good percentage of the human population exists. So an opportunity to protect a really fully functioning ecosystem is, 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 is is very rare. And uh, given that it is so rare, uh, I feel we have an obligation to the planet, not to mention other humans, um, to give this area special treatment. And, and, and that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, for better or for worse, we just don't have a place where we can do this in other parts of the, the globe right now. And, and, and it would be a shame if we allowed the, one of the places where we could put evolutionary and ecological processes and, and, and nature, uh, first were to be continued to be degraded by a thousand cuts. You know, back in the 1980s and 1990s, I used to hear all the time about cumulative impacts. And the idea was is that you have, you know, some logging here, a new mine there, some oil and gas here, new housing development there. And all of them in, in and of themselves individually are not that significant. But if you put the impacts of all of them together, that's the cumulative impacts, then it becomes a significant impact. And what we're seeing in the ecosystem have been seeing for decades is the gradual degradation of the ecosystem by these thousand cuts and so what putting it under uh the ecosystem under one management unit that uh which whose mission is to try to leave the area unimpaired for future generations would hopefully reduce those cumulative cuts significantly and maybe to a point where it's manageable uh and and something we can uh you know uh, remedy uh piece by piece and, and, and over time actually make the whole ecosystem more functioning, if that's a proper way to say it, uh, and, and better preserved for the, for the future.
0: George, I regret that we have run out of time. I'd love to continue this.
1: But, uh,
0: we're done. So, hey, thank you very much. This has been great. A marathon, uh, conversation. And I, uh, I hope
1: we can see forward movement on this idea. Uh, so, so thanks, thank, thank you so much, Jay, for allowing me to articulate it, because I, there, some of them don't fly, but a lot of them, you know, over time, gradually, uh, do become uh, realistic. Uh, I, you know, it's not quite the same, but I, 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 sometimes make the analogy to the whole thing about slavery. Uh, you know, when, when the Declaration of Independence was, was being written, I don't know if you're aware of this, Thomas Jefferson had a paragraph in there to eliminate slavery. Uh, but the southern, southern states wouldn't sign off on the declaration if slavery were banned. And, uh, so it didn't, you know, it, but the idea was out there. That's my point. And there was lots of discussion. And then in the 1850s and 60s, more and more about abolition of, of slavery. And it it took a civil war. Uh, hopefully we don't have a war over <laughs> system protection. But my point is that it, the, the idea never went away. And it got more and more discussion until it finally was implemented uh you know across the country and you know we didn't get civil rights completely out of that but it was a first step and we're still working on it but uh it it these ideas if they have uh, make sense do over time hopefully uh become the country's uh uh goals and mission
0: well i hope we uh, outlive the opportunity to uh, see it happen that would be that would be great
1: You and me both. You and me both. Okay. Thanks, Jay.
0: Thank you, George. George is an ecologist, a writer, and a photographer. He's studied and written about and photographed uh, places all over the United States. So thanks very much, George, for talking with us. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online. To js-wilderness.com,
1: see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.